0: Well, good morning. Thank you very much, Glennis, for a great reading. Welcome. If I don't know you, my name's Dave. I am usually up here with a guitar in my hand. I'm a music minister, so I'm feeling a little bit naked this morning, not having a guitar in front of me, so bear with me. If you're listening in the passage read so well by Glennis, you might be thinking, what on earth is this passage about? It has Sadducees, complicated marriage legislation, Seven brothers, a black widow, a bizarre hypothetical question and a riddle-like answer from Jesus. You know, when I first uh, read this passage after Bruce asked me to preach, I thought, thanks so much for the hospital pass, mate. Um, But this is a great passage and I believe it has something powerful for us this morning. So why don't I pray and ask God to speak to us. Let me pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you for your word. Open our hearts and minds this morning. Teach us what you want us to learn. Transform our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Amen. Well, many of you guys know uh, I used to be in a Christian rock band and for many years we lived and toured in the USA. Well, a few years back now, uh, we were invited to play on this pretty prestigious tour. 45 uh, dates all around America and we were pretty excited about it. Well, a few weeks before the tour started, my manager called me. He said, look, I'm sorry, uh, a new artist has been added to the lineup, bumping you down a slot. Sounds a bit bummed, and I said, okay, well, who is this artist? He said, well, his name's Robert Pierre. I'd never heard of him. My manager went on to tell me that Robert was a 17-year-old kid from one of the wealthiest families in America, and his parents were buying his way onto the tour. So, as you can probably understand, uh, we were pretty upset. I mean, you don't get into Christian music for the money. So we were a little bit disappointed. And, um, yeah, we were quite upset about it. I mean, you know, we felt like we had earned our spot on that tour. I mean, we had done hundreds, thousands of shows, lots of early morning radio breakfast uh, shows, lots of stuff. And here comes this young kid with little or no experience, and this great tour spot just gets handed to him. So anyway, the tour starts and uh, we are not that friendly to this kid and his family. They're touring with him, his parents. I mean, we just really thought that this kid and his parents were just super rich folks who were out of touch with normal people like you and me. Anyway, the next week of the tour rolls around and this kid's dad comes up to me, pulls me aside and says, hey, can I have a word with you? I'm thinking, oh no, he's heard me tease his son behind his back and he's just, he's just going to tear strips off me. Right? So he pulls me into the dressing room and he says, hey, uh, my wife and I have been doing the numbers and we just don't see how you out here on tour with your wives are making ends meet. So we love you guys. We love the ministry you're doing. We want to help out. Who do I make this check out to? Jaw meet floor, you know, I'm flabbergasted, I mumble something, the band's name or whatever, and he hands me a check for $10,000. That's the definition of ouch. I mean, that really hurt. I had a completely wrong understanding about these people. I mean, I just had looked at the surface information about them and I really hadn't bothered to get to know them. The more I did get to know them, I learned that, yeah, they had been very successful, but They spent most of their time figuring out how to best give their money away. I had a completely wrong understanding about them and I ended up with egg on my face, really embarrassed. Have you ever done something like this? Have you ever thought you understood something or someone and ended up wrong, embarrassed, with egg on your face like me? We're now going to dive into this passage and see a group of people called the Sadducees who had a totally wrong understanding about something very important, the afterlife. We're going to look at how they came to that understanding and what all of this might mean for us today. Okay, we're going to dive in. Please have your Bibles open. We're going to be referring back to that passage quite a lot. And uh, I'm going to start reading at verse 27. Here we go. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Okay, before we move on, a little background. Now, Jesus has just entered into Jerusalem in the last chapter and since he's arrived in Jerusalem, he's received a lot of opposition from the religious folks. So Jesus clears out the temple, the religious people come up to him and say, by what authority are you doing this? We heard Mike preach last week um, about the passage where the Pharisees come up to Jesus And ask him, hey, should we bother to pay taxes to Rome, hoping to get him in trouble with the Romans? And Jesus replies with his famous, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. And he silences them. And now, a new group of religious people, the Sadducees, step up to the plate to ask their question. Okay, Sadducees, who are they? Well, we actually don't know a lot about the Sadducees. This is the only time they appear in Luke's Gospel and none of their own writings have survived till today. So we don't know much, but this is what we do know. They were wealthy, upper-class aristocrats. These guys lived a privileged life and in order to keep their privileged lifestyle, they weren't afraid to compromise. They colluded with the Romans, the occupying force, to keep the status quo. Now they also had some pretty interesting spiritual beliefs. So they believed in God, but they didn't believe in much else that was supernatural. So no angels, no demons, and no afterlife. The idea of resurrection seemed silly, stupid to them, a fairy tale, maybe picked up from some foreign land. The verse we just read plainly says they didn't believe in a resurrection. It's also widely thought... they only believed the Bible to be the first five books of the Bible. So the rest of the Old Testament, they didn't believe in. Okay, so the Sadducees were worldly, didn't believe in much of the supernatural, and were happy to pick and choose parts of the Bible they were comfortable with. All right, that's some background on the Sadducees. Let's keep reading, verse 28. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us, But if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Okay, what is the deal with this question? Well, it it might seem like an innocent, if not complex, theological question on the surface, but at closer inspection, these guys, the Sadducees, have their own agenda. You see, they have this understanding that there simply cannot be life after death, a resurrection. So, they make up a question they think will prove their point. So, they're looking forward to Jesus attempting to answer this question and look like a fool. Or maybe agree with them that, yeah, this question is far-fetched, therefore so is the afterlife. To them, this question is a win-win. They really think they're going to stump Jesus. Okay, well, let's look at the actual question, right? It's based on something called leveret marriage. Stay with me. Leveret marriage was designed to help out widows in the ancient world. So if a widow lost her husband she also lost her source of income. She could very easily and very quickly become destitute. Poverty and death would not have been far off for a woman in this scenario. She couldn't just go out and get a job back then, so a law was made that if this did happen, the husband's brother would marry her to take care of her. So it's a merciful provision for widows. It's kind of like the ancient world's version of social welfare. But the Sadducees take this rarely used law, which had probably died out by the time of Jesus anyway, and made it into a bizarre, highly unlikely hypothetical question. See, here was the trump card the Sadducees thought they held, right? See, Jesus, the idea of an afterlife is absurd. If a woman is married to seven different guys in this life, who will she be married to in the next life? She can obviously only have one, one husband in the next life, so therefore this scenario makes the afterlife seem stupid. We just proved it. Have you ever had people come up to you with their trump cards? You know, maybe trump cards against belief, maybe against Christianity. You know, how could you believe in a God you can't see? How could you believe in a good God when there's so much suffering? How could you go to a church where the senior pastor is a die-hard manly fan? All right, well, how does Jesus reply? We're going to keep reading verse 34. Here we go. Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. Now, I love this. Jesus corrects their wrong understanding about the afterlife. Jesus begins by saying, Yeah, of course, people in this life marry. That's good. That's right. Genesis 2. But the next life, it's not like this life, it's different. The Sadducees assume that the next life, if there is one, has to be pretty much like the one they're experiencing. Or maybe better. In fact, that's what most Jews actually believed. That this life would be pretty much like the one they're experiencing, but hopefully better with their enemies defeated. But Jesus is correcting them. He should know. The life to come is not like this life. In the next life, people won't be married. So your question is irrelevant. It's irrelevant because you don't know what you're talking about. Where are you getting this wrong understanding from? The same story in Matthew and Mark has Jesus reply immediately to the question, you are in error. You don't know your scriptures or the power of God. Jesus continues with his reply, verse 37. Let's keep ready. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living for to him or alive. You see what Jesus is doing here? He has just challenged their wrong understanding about the afterlife, and now he's proving that the idea of an afterlife, a resurrection, has always been there. He proves it by using a very well known passage from the part of the Bible that the Sadducees hadn't cut out Moses and the Burning Bush, Exodus 3. In this passage, God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But at the time of God speaking with Moses, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob had been dead for hundreds of years. So what does God mean by saying he is still their God? He means that he is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. He is the God of people who still exist. A lot of dead people who don't exist anymore. You see, the promise God made back to Abraham way back in Genesis 12 still remains. Even death could not break the promise he made to them. God is the God of people who are alive. Checkmate Sadducees. But here's the thing. How did the Sadducees arrive at this wrong understanding that there is no afterlife? I mean, it was clear in the scriptures from a very well-known passage like we've just seen. The question is, what was the highest authority in their lives? You know, what dictated to them that there was no afterlife? It wasn't the scriptures, so what was it? Where did they go for their understanding? I think it was the world around them, their reality, their good life. They saw everything through the lens of their material wealth. Their understanding was limited by their surroundings and by their imagination. And it was very convenient. They thought that way. There's no life after death. Great. That suits our worldview that we'll never have to give an account of anything we've done in this life. It's just the here and now, so let's enjoy it while we're here. They went to the world around them for their understanding. Does this still happen today? You know, I went overseas recently on a long flight and uh, without my kids, I've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old, I had the luxury of enjoying the flight. And so I sat there and watched some movies and a movie I, I watched was uh, one called This Is The End starring Seth Rogen and some of his buddies. Now, it's not a very good movie. It's actually kind of crude. I'm not recommending you go and see it. But anyway, the big idea of the movie is uh, the main characters all go to this celebrity's house and they just have a huge party. And during this party, the end of the world begins. The apocalypse. So you know that everyone in the movie is sort of drinking, taking drugs they're having a big party and the rapture occurs. All the good people just get sucked up into heaven and the rest of the movie, the main characters are trying to figure out how they get to heaven. Okay, bear with me, it's silly. So at the end of the movie, most of the main characters make it to heaven and the last scene is of them all in heaven doing what? Yeah, having a party. drinking. Taking drugs, except they're all wearing white. I mean, how imaginative is that? Now, I know it's just a silly movie, but it does beg the question where are you getting your information from? You know, the writers of this movie, like the Sadducees, think that if there's an afterlife, it must just be like this life. They are limited by their own understanding. And I think that's the question for us today. Where do we go? for our understanding? What has the highest authority in our lives? You know, what about us Christians? We say we are Bible-believing Christians and that's a great thing, a very good thing. But do we really allow the Word of God to dictate how we live? Do we actually allow God to guide our steps? Or do we look to our own imagination how we would like to have things, what we would like to believe. The Sadducees looked to this life for their understanding. Their hope was firmly in the here and now. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we don't go to God's word for our understanding, or if we maybe have a surface look at what he says, we may be in danger of transforming the true powerful living God into our own personal God. Now you know you've done this when God always agrees with you and he can never challenge you. And this is is hard. This is a tough subject. This has been really challenging for me over the last little while asking myself these questions first. I mean where do I go for my understanding? What does have the highest authority in my life? Do I really trust God enough to allow them to guide me and to challenge me? I mean, we've just had the commitment series, right? And we've had some great teaching on money and generosity. And I'm being pretty honest here. During the messages, I'm sitting right where you are in the comfortable red chairs thinking, this message isn't for me. It's for all you guys. I mean, I work for a church. Me and my family, we're in ministry. We don't need to hear messages about money. But wait, how am I arriving at that conclusion where am I going for my understanding? What does actually have the highest authority in my life? Am I just sort of believing what I want to believe? Or am I really, truly allowing God to challenge me about a pretty tough subject, money, to give generously and sacrificially and not just enough? Or how about my marriage? You know, how do I measure how we're doing? Do I look to other people's marriages and try and compare? them and us to see how we're doing? Do I allow myself to be influenced by some parts of the media or this sort of Aussie blokey culture like it's funny to see how much housework you can get out of and how much of the kids you can sort of you know, help them with them you can get out of? Am I allowing myself to be influenced by that? Or am I going to God's word and be continually reminded to put not me, but my wife and my kids first? You know, I've got to ask, where do you go for your understanding? What has the highest authority in your life? You know, maybe you're heavily influenced by your family's opinions or by your friend's advice. Or I don't know, maybe it's a blog on the internet. I don't know, maybe it's a celebrity's Twitter account. I don't know. But ask yourself, where do you go? You know, maybe you're easily swayed by your feelings. Goodness, so many of us are. Do you find yourself saying, you know, I just felt right? I mean, in the Christian life there are some grey areas and it's difficult, but ask yourself, am I really searching the Scriptures? Am I submitting my will to Christ, allowing Him to guide my steps? Are you allowing the world to influence how you feel about yourself? Where are you going to come to an understanding about your identity? This is huge for Christians today. Are you allowing your job, your partner, fill in the blank, to give you that sense of identity? If you do, you give those things enormous power over your life. I mean, what are we, three days away from Christmas now? Are you allowing the beautiful and ridiculous Christmas story to encourage and inspire you? Think about it. Jesus, God, King of the universe, gave up everything to be born as a weak baby. 33 years later, makes the journey to Jerusalem to die on a cross. Why? To seek and to save you because you are his child. Are you being encouraged by that truth? Don't go anywhere else to seek out your identity. Seek out your identity in the fact that you are a son and a daughter of the living God. Where do you go for your understanding, What does have the highest authority in your life? You see, because the Sadducees did not go to God's word for their understanding, it had really serious consequences. They weren't interested in seeking answers from Jesus. They just wanted to push their own agenda. I and mean, what was driving their lives? Money, power, wealth, status? What this world could offer them? Their hands were far too full to receive anything from Jesus. What was their posture? One of arrogance. We don't need anything from you. We've come here to test you. Well, how do we approach Jesus? You know, what about us? Yeah, How do we approach Jesus? I mean, we've been on this journey in loop for maybe a year now, is it, or more? It might feel like it's two years or three years for some of you. But uh, it's been a little while now. And we've been looking at this sort of statement, following Jesus together. But what does that look like? What does it actually mean to follow Jesus? What does it look like? Luke's given us some fantastic snapshots, some great pictures, hasn't he? Does it look like coming to Jesus with your own agenda, with your hands full? Or maybe just for a little bit of advice. What does it look like, the leper? some chapters ago finding Jesus running through the crowd falling at his feet and crying Jesus if you are willing you can make me clean what does it look like the woman with a bad reputation around town bursting in making a scene in a dinner party running to Jesus feet and pouring out her old self in repentance not caring what everyone else thinks What does it look like? The tax collector just two chapters ago praying in the synagogue afraid to approach the front staying at the back bowing his head humbly crying God have mercy on me a sinner. What do these three people have in common? They humble themselves. I mean look at the Sadducees. They were face to face the word of God. Jesus Christ, the word became flesh. Did they listen? They wanted to trick him. Does following Jesus together look like that? I don't think so. Humble ourselves. You know, a friend of mine who comes to the church uh, here, he asked a friend of his to come along to church one Sunday. And his friend said, oh no, look, um, I've walked past on a Sunday and I've seen all the folks that go to some the and they look like nice, you know, well-dressed, respectable people and my life's pretty messed up. I would not fit in there. If only he knew that every single person in this room this morning who calls himself a Christian has said, I don't have it all together. My life is messed up. I cannot make it on my own. I am in need of saving. Jesus, be my saviour. That's what it means to be a Christian. Amen. Thanks, buddy. Jesus, take the punishment that I deserve so I can be given new life. We need to continually be broken before God, just like that, don't we? I mean, being a Christian doesn't mean you just say those things once. But it's starting every day like that in humility. We need to be broken before God, humble ourselves, and go to Him for our understanding. Surrender, and allow God and His Word to be the highest authority in our lives. We're now going to sing, and may this be our prayer as well I surrender all. is going to be our offer.